Okay, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. I'm really delighted that he agreed to tell his story. His name is Michael Shemwell, and he operates the Shunned Podcast and also the website thisjwlife.com. And he is a former member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he has uh, kindly agreed to kind of tell his story and his experiences. He no longer is a member but uh, to tell how he kind of passed through this organization with a lot of interesting doctrines. So, Michael, are you there? Yes, sure am. Glad to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for being here. So maybe what we can do to just get started is uh, talk a little bit about your background and and your experiences in Jehovah's Witnesses. We might uh, abbreviate that to JW, J-Dub, but Jehovah's (laughs) Witnesses. So uh, if you could just tell a little bit about yourself, that'd be great. All right. So um, let's see. Well, I guess it all started. uh, I'm going to take you way back, you know, when I was born. (laughs) Um, You know, I was I was born into what I guess everyone would just consider a normal family. I mean, you know, we celebrated holidays, normal Christian family. Anyway, we celebrated holidays, weren't particularly religious, but um, just had a normal family life. I went to school. I played with my friends. I uh, had uh, some aunts and uncles around and some cousins, and we played with them. And it's just, you know, the, the typical childhood. But when um, I was about eight or nine, uh, my parents had, my dad, I think he lost his job. And so they had a little bit of a financial setback. So they had to move, and they moved to a different area of town. Well, they just happened to move next to Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> So we literally threw a chance real estate happening, uh, ended up right next door to a family of witnesses. And my mom and the uh, woman next door really hit it off. And so my mom started studying with the lady next door. Uh, So witnesses have their own publications. My mom had a lot of questions about the Bible. And Jehovah's Witnesses have an answer for just about anything. And if they don't have an answer, they have a thought-stopping technique or something so that you don't question it further. And so my mom had always been searching for the what she felt would be the biblical truth. Her, Funny enough, her uh, only brother is a Baptist minister and went through the seminary, but he couldn't answer everything. Um, I remember when I was a kid one time, my parents kind of honestly making fun of my uncle in the car once and saying that, you know, he said that, um, you know, that such and such may be your truth, but that doesn't mean it's my truth. And they just thought that was hilarious because to them, especially once they joined Jehovah's Witnesses, life became black and white. There was true and false, and that's it. So Jehovah's Witnesses refer to their religion as the truth. Uh, capital T's there. Right. <laughs> um, there, there, there's no doubt about it. They have the truth. And by, by doing that and by conversing in such a way as to say, so when did you get the truth or how did you come into the truth? Therefore, everything else in life is by default false. Hmm. You don't even have to discuss it. It's not worthy of discussing. It's false. We have the truth. Gotcha. So they're the truth over all other Christian or non-Christian denominations. Absolutely. They are the one and only truth. Gotcha. Um, And so 
you know, so my life really changed uh, once my parents became witnesses when I was eight, nine-ish. Um, we no longer celebrated any holidays. I remember my mom sitting me down on the last Christmas and telling me that would be the last Christmas. Uh, not easy for a, a child at that age to hear. Right. Um, but our life quickly changed from our you know, going to see my grandparents all the time and my aunts and uncles sometimes and, and just seeing everybody around the holidays and things like that. It, it changed and, and my entire life became about going to meetings. Um, they had meetings on Tuesday night, Thursday night and Sunday morning. And you you had to attend all of those meetings. And then we would also, of course, knock on doors um, and we would do that at least Saturday morning, but probably Saturday morning. Sunday after the meeting, and then sometimes, even as a kid, uh, my parents would sign up for special um, campaigns to, to go knock on doors for a certain amount of hours, and I remember we'd get dragged out after school, uh, you know, you wow. go to school all day, come home and go from, you know, 6 to 8 or 8.30, knocking on doors. So did that start right away, right, when you were 8 or 9? It started pretty young. The, gotcha. the, the knocking, I mean, all that's the meetings and the knocking on doors started right away. Gotcha. Absolutely. Um, the, I can't, I can't remember exactly how I was when my parents were doing a lot of what was called pioneering and going out and, and doing a certain number of hours. But I mean, I was 11, 12, maybe. Um, very young, yeah, I would say. Yeah, very young, very young. Um, you're forced as a child to be different. Um, the only people that you're really supposed to have as friends are people within the organization. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't Jehovah's Witnesses that have friends outside of it, but technically you're warned against having friends on the outside because they might uh, do something that could cause you to deviate from the faith or might influence you in some way. And if you do that, then you lose all hope of salvation because remember, this is the one and only truth. Right. So there's a lot of fear there that, right. that's instilled of the world around you. Um, and, you know, as a, but it, also, it's not just that. The group itself has a very limited number of people who are going to heaven, is my understanding. Right? Is that 144? Is that a truth within JWs that only a few people are going to make it to this kind of chosen post-Armageddon phase? Okay, so, that's, so there, here's the difference you're going to have to understand between Jehovah's Witnesses and most of Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the, the the Garden of Eden, that the whole Adam and Eve story, that was God's intent. And so God is going to make that happen. It's been delayed for some time because Adam and Eve sinned, but it's going to happen. So the return to Eden is happening. Yes, and, and this is going to be literal on the earth. So any day now, it's, it's been, been coming imminently since the late 1800s, um, any day now, Armageddon is going to come. And Jehovah God is going to essentially rid the earth of everyone but Jehovah's Witnesses and maybe Jehovah's Witness sympathizers. Um, and everyone else is going to live on this earth and it's going to be transformed into a paradise. Wow. Now, there are 144,000 who are chosen to rule in heaven as kings and priests over all the people on the earth. So they are going to go to heaven and rule with Christ Jesus over the earth, which will be basically composed of Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. So they'll be the <laughs> ruling class 
within the Jehovah's Witnesses will be the 144. Yeah, yeah, 144,000 taken from Revelation. Um, funny that the, the number is taken literally, though it's in a book full of symbolism. But I digress. <laughs> point, point taken. Um, so, so, yeah, so there is the 144,000. They will rule. You know, how do you know you're a member of the 144,000? You just know. You just know. Gotcha. You just know. And, but they're uh, also, did you get taught like this dispensationalists and that Christ returned already as an invisible spirit in 1874? Did these things, were these things presented to the general JW adherents? Yes. Okay. Yes. So now I, I don't know about 1874. I, it was nine, it probably, if you had done some research, it's probably been changed. They changed things a lot. So um, in 1914, they believe that um, Jesus essentially um, took the reign on the throne in the heavens. He is now ruling over the earth, but it's <laughs> it's what's, what's called an invisible rule or a parousia, which I think is taken from Greek or something. Um, don't ask me to make sense of that, but um, so yes. Well, that, I mean, it's so you, there's some kind of similar similarities I saw between the JW and Seventh-day Adventist where... You know, the end is happening soon, and there's predictions of uh, Christ's return. And if it doesn't happen, then they just move the goalposts. It seems like yes. that would go. Yeah, so. And there well, was interesting, so, in one of your talks, you talked about your their truth. You know, that, that the Jehovah's Witnesses had their own version of the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so Jehovah's Witnesses actually came from, essentially, the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, there was the, I think there was like the Millerite movement and... There was the great disappointment in the 1800s where they were expecting the end, which didn't come. Right. And uh, Charles Taze Russell, who founded uh, the International Bible Students, which later became Jehovah's Witnesses under the second um, president of the organization. Um, anyway, he was a he was in that movement. He was somehow adjacent to the Millerite movement. Okay. I can't go through all the history, but he he was involved. Gotcha. And so you see where the the nexus of all this begins. I see. Yeah, so I mean, and, and so some of these doctrines and these, you had said in one of your talks, like you were spending 50 hours a month uh, pioneering. Does that sound right? Oh, yes. As a, so I got, everything gets real in the organization uh, when you get baptized. When you, mm-hmm. when you get dunked underwater, um, then you are an official Jehovah's Witness. And at that point, everything is real. In other words, uh, the threat of shunning, um, the so-called privileges of going out and knocking on doors for so you could sign up to be what was called an auxiliary pioneer, and you could so I would go out. I was baptized at 14, and I would go out in the summer months, and I would knock on doors as an auxiliary pioneer at, for 60 hours a month. And then once I turned 18, I became what was called a regular pioneer. And that was a thousand hours a year, or roughly ninety hours a month. Wow! So like two full work weeks in yes. addition to your regular life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's not much of a regular life. Life is pretty much being one of Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> right. So you're really. I mean, in some of the stories I'd heard, you and your wife have also gone through this experience too. So you reference her often, but yes. the dedication was uh, incredible. Really incredible dedication. Yeah, um, they don't really give you time to do anything like think about what you're learning or um, you know, go to college. You know, college is discouraged because they don't want people to learn critical thinking. Interesting. 
you know, so they they don't want you to see outside the box, essentially. Gotcha. And uh, I mean, it's just like the time. So, but the other thing is that the the seventh the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a lot of their own literature, their own internal mm-hmm. literature that they hand out, but also make their adherents list, uh, read and listen to different than kind of standard Bible teachings. Would you agree with that? Oh, they absolutely have their own literature. Everything that, you know, the, everything that we discussed in those, it was three meetings a week. It was five hours. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was one hour on Tuesday, <clears throat> two hours on Wednesday and two hours on, I mean, two hours on Thursday and two hours on Sunday. And everything that we did, you know, we, we, we always prided ourselves on being Bible students, but, and we did read the Bible a lot, but it was through the lens and the narrative given to us through Jehovah's Witnesses' own publications. They are prolific with their own literature. Fascinating. So you had your own Jehovah's Witness Bible, and there was a lot of tracts that Charles Taze, Taze Russell wrote. Were you still referencing his materials? Oh, no. Um, they don't want you to look back because oh, they've okay. had to change so much throughout the years uh, because oh, they believe. I mean, back when Charles Taze Russell uh, was in, the, you know, was leading the organization, let's say um, they celebrated holidays. You were allowed to smoke cigarettes. Um, things have changed. So things like blood transfusions, um, like that is something that they won't, they've, they've always been pretty staunch about not allowing, but recently they've kind of softened their stance in ways and said that now you can take certain blood fractions that, and they get to determine, of course, <laughs> what constitutes blood. Interesting. Uh, what was the rationale for avoiding blood transfusions? Wow. So in the Bible, um, it says in Acts, is it 15, 28, and 29, so uh, Paul is, is talking to the people there. And if you read the context, it seems like he's mitigating a dispute between the Jews and the Gentiles of the time. And in one of the verses, he says uh, to abstain from blood. Right. right. And, and you know, because these are people who literally ate blood and then it was offending the other group. And that's what he was talking about. But and he was just basically saying, hey, everybody knock it off and get along. But they took that abstinence um, from taking in blood to mean even medicinally, um, even though it's not the same as eating blood. Right. And that goes back to the Old Testament, Old Testament Jewish prohibition on eating uncooked animals. But uh, so that was it. So and there's been like a number of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who've died because of their religious faith. Oh, thousands. Um, and, And it happens a lot. Unfortunately, when you hear about it, a lot of times it's during childbirth because, uh, you know, women sometimes lose a lot of blood during that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so here you have a brand new uh, mother and father and the, the mother's not there because she died a martyr for the cult and wow. refused to take blood. So you reference the Jehovah's Witnesses as a cult. When mm-hmm. did that that kind of. Uh, when did that position change from where you were a adherent to uh, mm-hmm. this this uh, position, this newer position? So you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was younger, um, people would tell me I was in a cult, right? And I would staunchly defend that. You know, we're not a cult. Uh, there's no one man at the top, 
and um, you know, it's not like we worship some man. We worship uh, Jehovah God, and so those were the reasons that I, that we and honestly, we were given those reasons, <laughs> which is even more culty. We were told from the platform why we weren't a cult and what to say, essentially. Interesting. So they had the response, like Scientology. <laughs> yes. It's like Scientology or something. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it, honestly, once I left the organization, um, it took me a little while uh, to use the term cult. And, and the reason really is more personal because nobody wants to admit they were in a cult. No, nobody wants to to feel like they were tricked or... Um, it's kind of an, a shot to the ego, I guess, a little bit. It's just not easy to use the C word. <laughs> cult is a, is a hard a word, word to say. Yeah, right. It is a strong word. And But when I started doing research into cult models, uh, Stephen Hassan, being mm. a cult expert, has described the bite model. Um, that's if you can control a person's behavior, their access to information, their thoughts, and their emotions, then chances are, you're in a cult and we were absolutely our, our behavior was dictated to us because if we behaved outside of the dictates, the mandates that, that they made, which were subject to change by them, then we would be shunned and lose everything. Um, inform, right. Information. We weren't allowed to, we were actively discouraged from looking outside of the publications of Jehovah's witnesses Um we were told what to think, and we were absolutely told how to feel about everything. Um, it's interesting. So, so, like, you are hanging out also in this same kind of smaller group. Uh, the, the total members worldwide are, what, like 8 million, but I can't yeah. imagine in every state or city that there's this large grouping of people. So you're seeing the same people all the time, right? Right, absolutely. Uh, the congregations I was in, you know, hundreds, 120 people. Gotcha. Maybe you can also explain when you also talked about the fog culture as well, in addition mm-hmm. to the bite model. Yeah, fog is another model that's used at times, uh, fear, obligation, and guilt. And um, you know, we lived in fear. We lived in fear of the this coming Armageddon. So, I mean, it wasn't just, you know, it was going to be doomsday for everybody on the outside, but we were terrified. What if you slipped up and did something that could get you shunned committed some moral failing on the day before armageddon you know there's no forgiveness you're going to be um killed (laughs) everlasting everlasting death so there's no hope so so you're you're in fear for your own life you're afraid of the people around you that they're even within the congregation that they that there might be a bad apple in there that might spoil the whole bunch and that might tempt you to do something wrong so there's a a big culture in there, a, a fear of everything. And then obligation, you know, going along with that fear, we were obligated to, if we saw somebody in the congregation do something that they should get in trouble for, and we didn't report it to the elders in the congregation, then we were as responsible as them. Wow. So there's it's a like huge... A, it's a snitch culture. Oh, absolutely a snitch culture. Wow. I had to snitch on a lot of people. And, and I mean, I did it because... Not only was I afraid, I didn't want to be implicated, but also uh, we were taught that snitching was loving, that we were going to help this man or woman be readjusted so that they could uh, stand firm in the faith and have everlasting life. So people were being brought before the man, like these three-man panels or large Mm -hmm. panels to confess their 
errors, right? Yes. Yeah, so they have their own judicial system internally. Um, every congregation has a body of elders. Uh, how many they have depends on the congregation. Uh, but if you commit uh, what they would deem a serious sin, then you sit down, you are brought before three men, and uh, they go over what happened. And really, at times, in very abusive detail. So to, to uh, emphasize that, so let, let's say you have a, a woman in the congregation, a, a sister, and um, she had sex, but she's not married, okay? And somehow this, this was found out. Uh, she was caught in some way. This woman has to go sit in front of three men and answer questions about <laughs> the entire experience, whether she enjoyed it, how it all went down. Wow. I mean, positions, everything. Like, what kind of underwear she wore. like. Wow. And all this stuff, because they're they're looking to see was this premeditated. Um, it's it's they want to get into your psyche, and they think they can do so um, with impunity. With it sounds like like there's oh, no question. It sounds like, and I think one of your talks you said that some of the men had a overly salacious interest in details of sexual yeah. peccadillas. Yeah. Yeah. Now you know, full in full honesty, I've never been in front of a judicial committee but i've just i've talked to a lot of people and interviewed people through my podcasts and a number of people have basically said that that just the, the questions it, it just i think it can't help but make you feel like you're standing in front of creepy men who are you know getting off on the details of a uh, of an encounter gotcha and so then the guilt part is also you're always feeling guilty about possibly uh, bending the rules or stepping over boundaries then. Oh, yes, always. And it's not even just bending the rules. So there's a lot of discussion. So one of the things I find and that I experienced myself, because I eventually got uh, suicidal being in the organization, there's, there's a feeling that people have of never being good enough. So there's this guilt. It's not just about doing something bad or being bad but never being good enough because they always want more. It's always, they have talks all the time on, could you put more hours in, in knocking on doors? You know, are you not only at every meeting, but are you there like 20 minutes early so that you can have encouraging discourse with your brothers and sisters? Are you the perfect husband, the perfect friend, the perfect, it's just everything. So it's kind of like a works-based faith as opposed to grace, where you're saved by grace. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I, I refer to it all the time as a, a performance-based religion. That's wow. what it is. Yeah, it kind of has kind of like a multi-level marketing feel, like you're constantly being <laughs> judged. I mean, some aspect to it. Like in other less coercive environments, it's grace, and then you kind of do things through grace, works reflect grace, but... Uh, yeah, it seems to yeah, be I didn't, I didn't, so you keep mentioning grace, I, I have to interrupt, so they don't use that term, um, Jehovah's Witnesses do not, I've never, I had never heard the term grace wow. in the organization, the term they use is undeserved kindness. Wow, amazing, so they had their own kind of, own kind of internal... Uh, language, kind of like these other cults, yes. like Scientology. I didn't know that. Yeah, so everybody on the outside, was the term that we use for everybody, for all of you, <laughs> were worldly. You were worldly. Now, worldly, typically, you would say, well, that's a person that's experienced, has some knowledge, 
uh, some wisdom, some hard-won wisdom maybe. Um, but worldly to us just meant part of the world, and we were to be no part of the world. So we had a lot. They even have the term present truth. So right. truth can be tra- changed at any time depending on the men at the top and how they decide to change it. Incredible. Incredible. You know, one of the things that uh, Steve Hassan is very famous, you mentioned him, he always talks about course of control as mm-hmm. the kind of foundational thing for almost all these groups. So he came out of the Moonies, so he was also kind of in a Christian sect, a sensibly Christian sect. But you don't see it sometimes externally, you don't see this coercion, you don't see the kind of control. But man, what you, when you're saying that, that's the phrase that comes to mind when you're talking about yeah, so there was um, there was a, a man. So the the organization at this point doesn't have an individual head. It started with Charles Taze Russell, then Joseph Rutherford, and it went through some different men. And then now they have a, a, a governing body. So at this moment in time, there are eight men on it. But uh, there was a man who named Ray Franz, and Ray Franz reached the top. Okay, he got to the 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 pinnacle. He he became one of the governing body. Gotcha. And he left and he wrote a book called Crisis of Conscience. And in that book, he details meetings that he had with some of the other governing body members. And so that question of control came up and it was I thought it was interesting. A point that stood out to me from the book was that the other governing body members, their, their attitude was essentially, well, you know, what will these people do if we let them make their own decisions? You know, we can't we can't let these people go on their own instincts because they're just, you know, it's going to be chaos. It's going to be bedlam. Um, And so that's the attitude which they have. Remarkable. That's amazing. And like the other thing is like this, the religion itself kind of went through these different permutations. The whole term Jehovah's Witness did not get applied until 1931. Is that correct? So it's fairly recent. So it didn't come from the beginning. And it's also another unusual aspect is the the focus upon jehovah while saying you're a christian church so you're focusing <laughs> on god the god creator god yeah it's just really it's different the ideology or doctrines are different yeah there's um sometimes people will go through uh, different talks or um publications and they'll just just for fun, they'll count how many times Jehovah was said versus how many times uh, Jesus or Christ was said, and it's all it's it's completely Jehovah focused. Um, they are that so they had a book called The Greatest Man Who Ever Lived, and and that book was about Jesus Christ, um, but it was one book, and that's the only book that I can think of that they ever really had off the top of my head anyway that was focused on Jesus Christ. And when people sometimes on the outside would question us, well, you know, you all aren't Christian. We would, or you all don't even believe. Sometimes people say you all don't even believe in Jesus. We were actually told to point toward, well, look, we even have this book (laughs) about Jesus. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. So you, and you include kind of a book list of reading. uh, I think it was on your website of suggested reading. But when you talk about this guy, Ray Franz, how many people, kind of uh either experience burnout or question the faith and leave is it i mean are you part of a smaller group it seems like when i was doing my research there's a significant number of xjw's 
Okay, so there there are a few ways to leave, and I'll, I'll lay those out for you real quick. Okay. So you can commit a moral failing as they see it, and if they deem you not to be repentant and not sorry enough, uh, then you're disfellowshipped. And when you're disfellowshipped, you are shunned, they, you are dead to them, you no longer exist. You can also do what's called fading. So sometimes people do burn out, and people kind of wake up. And they know they can't, or they just maybe sometimes they're even still mentally in, but they just know they can't live up to that lifestyle. And so what they do is what's called fading. So they just kind of stop going to meetings. They slow down, then they stop going to meetings. They kind of try to fall off the face of the earth and hope to be left alone. And then the other way is to disassociate. And that's what my wife and I did. And that is to say, to send in a letter and say, you know, I don't want to be one of you anymore. <laughs> gotcha. I, I'm done. And uh, at that point, you are also shunned and treated as though you are dead. Um, but there happened, are that happened for you four years ago, about. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, September will be four years. So there are at least back in the day the statistic that was given, and I think it was even given by Jehovah's Witnesses, was that approximately I think seventy thousand a year were disfellowshipped. Hmm. Um, so those, those are only the, that's only the people that were disfellowshipped. There are a lot of people who leave on their own terms or fade. Um, and so, you know, cumulatively over the years, there are a, a lot of us out here, but we're very disparate and all over the earth. Gotcha. But there is like a little nexus of people talking about it. When you get disfellowshipped within the Jehovah's Witness, is it a formal process? They write you up and give you a write up and explain reasons that you're done. Uh, so that is what the judicial committee is for. So when you sit in front of those three men and they accuse you of this sin and you make your case for why you're sorry, or maybe you're not sorry, but whatever, you make your case for being sorry usually. And then they will send you out of the room. And then when you, they will call you back in when they have made their decision. And right then and there, they will tell you, you know, either what you did um, you seem sorry for, so we'll do what's called reproving you, and we'll just make an announcement from the congregation, uh, from the stage maybe, um, that you have been reproved. Um, and then you're still one of Jehovah's Witnesses. You're not shunned, but maybe you can't go knock on doors for a while or raise your hand and comment at meetings or give talks or something like that. Mm-hmm. But if they determine that you're disfellowshipped, um, you have seven days to appeal. And now that, <laughs> that appeal isn't that you can appeal uh, the decision itself, really. You're you're basically just a... You can appeal, it is taken to another congregation, and they just look over the paperwork, basically, and make sure that all the... that the elders that you saw uh, were doing things by the book. Gotcha. And they have a book. (laughs) They have a secret book. Right. And then when you got... When you disassociated... What was the kind of culture shock or the kind of uh, changes that you made, you know, to not really take part in the Jehovah's Witnesses anymore? So for my wife and I, really, it it was a it was a process. It wasn't sudden. In 2008, um, I got so depressed and that whole, you know, not ever feeling good enough um, that I did. I became suicidal. not that I wanted to die, but I just I didn't see much of a point in living because I, I couldn't live up to these standards. So my prospects of everlasting life 
um, you know, of this hope that had always been held out before me, you know, those probably weren't going to be in my future. And I didn't really understand myself and why I couldn't live up to all the things they wanted from me. It, it's a very perfectionistic culture and it, and it breeds perfectionism. And I, I became a rabid perfectionist. And if you can't live up to that perfection, then you just feel like garbage about yourself. And they kind of intimate that on levels. But so I started reading books about um, mental disorders and, and listening to podcasts as well. Podcasts are big for me. So I listened to podcasts about mental disorders. I read uh, books on happiness and emotional abuse and narcissism. And just as I worked through all this getting more mentally and emotionally healthy, I could start to see the environment of the cult as being extremely toxic. And the more and more I started to see that, I had this this lead time. So from 2008 until 2015, when, when we officially disassociated, um, we had all those years where we were waking up and we were starting to see life through fresh perspectives so it wasn't sudden. So people, who, when they're disfellowshipped, a lot of times... It's just boom, gotcha. you're gone, right. and and everything, and you've you got a whole different life. For us, we were slowly building a new life and didn't even know that's what we were doing. Interesting. So, so you, so you didn't have a hard. shock, or it wasn't something that was a super, you know, uh, orderly break. You knew what was happening. It was interesting. There, I wrote an art. There's an article about you, I believe, in the was it the Louisville paper where you uh, Insider your, Louisville. Uh, gotcha. Insider Louisville, and it was where you were saying that both you and your wife were having the same uh, misgivings or concerns, but not communicating. Like so, then you mm -hmm. finally started talking. It's like, wow, yeah. So, um, yeah, because actually bringing up my misgivings to her, because I'm the first one to do so, was a dangerous thing because she was technically supposed to turn me in to the elders, um, to quote save me, but. Um, she, although it took her a little while to come around, she at least trusted me to know that I would not have been saying, she knew that what I was saying was right. And she knew that I would not have said it for no reason. We're, we had, we have a very close relationship. We actually, um, not only have we been married now for almost 20 years, but, um, we even work together almost every day in our cleaning business. So yeah, we're, we're, she, she, she knew that she could trust me. One of the interesting things about Jehovah's Witnesses is like in a lot of these other cults, you have this overarching kind of leader who set up the cult, whether it's present day Nexium, Moonies, mm -hmm. L. Ron Hubbard. But one of the things about the Jehovah's Witnesses is like it just kind of built up over time, these coercion and the the strictures of the of the belongers. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that there's one person who really like, I'm really going to get these people, you know, nailed in or dialed into this? So um, Scientology has their, their David Miscavige for their L. Ron Hubbard, right? Right. The second guy comes in and, and things start to get ratcheted up a little bit maybe. Mm -hmm. um, same with Jehovah's Witnesses. There was Charles Taze Russell who was um, – he started the International Bible Students. And you could be any religion and come to those meetings and discuss the Bible. And, and there wasn't a lot of – rigid dogma though they were still kind of looking toward dates um but joseph rutherford was the david miscavige gotcha. joseph rutherford so when when russell died there was actually a will that outlined 
a succession plan, and Rutherford basically, in a coup, <laughs> took over everything, and he didn't like that Russell got attention. So, so for instance, he banned beards because Russell had a beard. Wow. Um, and so he started differentiating. I think it was him who came up with the Jehovah's Witnesses name, and and a lot of I think the holidays went because. So he kind of started this path. Um, as far as I know, historically, I obviously wasn't there, but he seemed to have been the guy who started the path that made it turn really uh, more and more ugly. Fascinating. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. The and uh, so, what have you tried to like adapt to the you know to non? I mean, the time, the opportunity cost, fifty hours a week uh, <laughs> out there is a lot of opening you to a lot of free time. I mean, you basically broke the or you broke the bite model by looking at information before you left in 2015. But um, are you still reading or what are your kind of present day? I know the podcast shunned, you know, you're working on that, but what else have you realized or uh, experienced? So, you know, at first um, my wife and I, we like to kind of have at a point, we realized we kind of like to have a a theme for a year, kind of a focus, um, often kind of a self-help type thing or something to, that we need to work on in life. And um, when we left, we had the the year of adventure. So we just took a year and um, it's not like we went crazy. We went to some concerts. We, we hiked a lot. We uh, went to ball games. We traveled a little bit, Um, but we just kind of went out and experienced life and it was really fun to be able to do so. Then the year after that, we, we deemed our year of relationships. So essentially um, because, you know, when you leave, you don't necessarily have friends. So our first friends, like I said, we have a cleaning business and we clean houses and have done so for all these years. And our cleaning clients became our first friends. Interesting. Uh, we go to their houses for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, they've adopted us into, into their families. It's a, it's a really tremendously beautiful experience. That's and, and so now... Um, you know, we've got all these friends and we've got a more well-rounded life and uh, I'm spending a lot of time now. So at first I did the, this JW life podcast. That's when I told my personal story. Then I, now I'm doing the shun podcast where I help other people to tell their stories and not just ex witnesses. There's ex Mennonite, Amish, FLDS, di- lots of different groups. Um, and then, I also have become a certified life coach so that um, so now I have a Facebook group and I I kind of help coach people through their problems and I actually do individual coaching and pay group coaching and I I just really focused on trying to take because I, I know what it's like to be in that that dark place and I have learned so much through the years and, and taken away so many hard-won lessons that and rebuilt a life for myself that is honestly fantastic so what's i the, want to help other people do that what's the name of that facebook group uh shun podcast shun podcast so they can <laughs> yeah. go if people have questions or want life coaching or anything they can sure. find you at shun podcast on facebook as well as the shun podcast that's on youtube with all the yep. information that you have and all the there's a lot of long form discussions you know hour two three hours there and then i also listen to your preliminary podcast which was this jw life t-h-i-s j-w 
life.com, which where you talk about just the basics of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. So yeah, people... they can also go to shunpodcast.com, and there's information there about coaching and things as well. Okay, cool. I, I didn't, I didn't get a hold. Of, I didn't see that. We're at 40 minutes. Is there anything else, Mike? My... Oh, one other thing I wanted to add is I reference this very recent uh, article about you that was in the Insider Louisville. The title of it is Shunned, a former Jehovah's Witness in his quest to help others. That was just published on June 2nd. So, And it's a two-part. I have The second part isn't out yet, but I would recommend uh, people read that. It's a, it's a really good article. So um, is there anything else that we missed or anything you'd like to add or tell the listener? Well, I, I could always... <laughs> there, there's a, a million things I could say, but um, the, way I le- the, the way I end all my podcasts is to uh, love others, do no harm, and go be happy. Because I think that's that's how I, I try to live my life now. Um, and just to, to embrace other people, to look past differences, um, and, and just encourage people to, you know, we don't all have to believe the same thing. We don't have to believe the same way. We can disagree vehemently, but there's there's no reason that we can't still see the humanity in that person and see that they're just a product of their experiences too, as I once was, because I wasn't the person that I that I am today. And I had a lot of misgivings about other people on the outside that were not fair because that's what I was taught my whole life. And people can change if we give them a chance. So just love everybody and, and be happy. Awesome. That's a great message. The name again is, is Michael Shemwell, S-H-E-M-W-E-L-L, Shun the Podcast, and this JW Life. Mike, thank you very much for the interview. Oh, thank you. I appreciate your time. All right, cool. All right.